Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today is episode number 36, and we are concluding our discussion of one of the biggest questions out there, why do bad things happen to good people? We're also going to be talking about the hypocrisy of Judah and the cunning scheme of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And I got to say, Today's episode is probably rated PG-13+, plus, maybe PG-14 or 15 or even 16. Not because of what I'm going to talk about. I'm sticking to the topic of suffering. But my, oh my, that Genesis passage we're reading through today is something else. It is chock full of stuff. Anyway, we are going to continue our discovering of suffering our discussion of suffering, and we are concluding our brief and barely more than shallow answer of the question, why do bad things happen to comparatively good people? I do want to urge you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I do want to urge you to share the show on social media with your friends on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or wherever else you are. I think there are some answers in here for people who are suffering and who have suffered and who have questions. Some of these episodes have been the most, some of the most popular episodes we've had since we started the show way back at the beginning of the year in January. Um, and sharing the show on social media, giving a good review on iTunes and all that kind of good stuff. I think that's a good way to get the word out. And it's a good way to get people involved in daily listening to and reading the word of God, which is our goal. So today we will be reading Job chapter four and enduring the dumb and wrongheaded advice of one of Job's I guess he's a well-meaning but very misguided friend. We're also going to read Mark chapter 8, where Jesus miraculously feeds the 4,000 and teaches his disciples to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And we're going to conclude with Romans chapter 8, which will begin to shine light on one of the most important and controversial theological concepts of the Bible, which is predestination, and will also give us one of the most powerful and comforting single passages in all of the Bible, which is incredibly fitting for our discussion today, so I'm going to read it twice. Romans 8:28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. There is so much comfort in that one passage. It is hyper-comforting. It is nuclear in its power. That is a verse we all should know by heart and know where is. Now, as we read the story of Judah and Tamar, we need to be reminded that not all of what Old Testament saints do is correct and God-pleasing. Judah is an extreme hypocrite in this passage and wonderfully illustrates Jesus' warning in Mark chapter 8 to avoid hypocrisy. Now, Jesus is of the line of Judah. There are some interesting people in Jesus' genealogy, including a couple of prostitutes, some rapists, and just some awful, awful people. And and Judah is not great, and he kind of realizes it, but honestly, it doesn't really redeem him because his hypocrisy is just beyond absurd. Tamar's way of holding her father-in-law to his promises 
also, uh, shall we say, less than ideal. Now, the subject of Onan and his death probably deserves its own separate episodes, but uh, my kids listen to this podcast, including my eight-year-old, and honestly, I'm just not very keen to explain this situation to her in any sort of depth just yet. And given that she asks about, I don't know, 500 questions an hour, I feel like it'll come up. So, not going to go into the Onan situation here. I am, however, planning on compiling these episodes into a series of Bible question books, which will be released on Amazon over the year of this podcast. I am a writer. I'm not a well-known writer or anything like that, but I've released eight books, and I hope to release uh, four more books this year. And... I will very likely cover the Onan situation in there in one of the first Bible question books I release, uh, hopefully in early spring. I'm quite sure you will be waiting with bated breath for those books. So let's go read our Genesis and Job passages and then discuss suffering and finally conclude with Mark 8 and Romans 8. This is Genesis chapter 38, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. And it's PG-13+. plus. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adelamite named Herah. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to another son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chekzib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat for my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you? he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. I told you it was PG-13. 
When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Anam? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah, saying, I cannot find her, and beside, the men of the place said there has been no cult prostitute there. Judah replied, Well, let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, Examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, Oh, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her room. In her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, and out came his brother, and she said, What a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out, and he was named Zerah. Okay, well, that's quite a passage. Genesis 38 there. Uh, There's a lot we could discuss about it, but we're going to stay in our lane and focus mainly on the issue of suffering. And we're going to read Job chapter 4 and then go back to our continuation and really conclusion of the question of why do bad things happen to good people. Job chapter 4 verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Should anyone try to speak with you when you are exhausted? Yet who can keep from speaking? Indeed, you have instructed many and have strengthened weak hands. Your words have steadied the one who was stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. But now that this has happened to you, you have become exhausted. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Isn't your piety, your confidence in the integrity of your life, your hope? Consider... Who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. They perish at a single blast from God and come to an end by the breath of his nostrils. The lion may roar and the fierce lion growl, but the teeth of young lions are broken. The strong lion dies if it catches no prey and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was brought to me in secret. My ears caught a whisper of it. Among unsettling thoughts from visions in the night, when deep sleep comes over men, fear and trembling came over me and made all my bones shake. I felt a draft on my face and the hair on my body stood up. A figure stood there, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form loomed before my eyes. I heard a whispering voice. Can a mortal be righteous before God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God puts no trust in his servants and he charges his angels with foolishness, how much more those who dwell in clay houses whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth? 
They are smashed to pieces from dawn to dusk. They perish forever while no one notices. And their tent cords not, are their tent cords not pulled up? They die without wisdom. So there's another interesting passage there. And what we have is Eliphaz telling about his encounter with a ghostly being who gives him something of a prophetic word. Now, if you're actually interested in the topic of angels, ghosts, and other spiritual beings in the Bible, and you're in the Monterey or the Salinas area, we're actually, we're doing a seven-week study on that on Wednesday nights at Valley Baptist Church on 320 Church Street. But I also have a book on Amazon, Angels, Ghosts, and Other Bible Mysteries that kind of cover, cover that. We're not covering that tonight. We're focusing on suffering, but if that's an interest to you, you can check out that book. Now, I don't understand suffering when it happens to me. I, what I mean is I don't understand the periods in my life where the suffering level is high, but it is illogical and ignorant to lose faith because of suffering. So think about it this way. If I promise to give you $20 every Sunday for 10 years, and I do, without fail, give you that $20, wouldn't that make me reliable? Well, I would be reliable because I did what I told you I would. And the Bible promises suffering and a lot of it. The Bible promises that good people will suffer. The Bible promises that people, lovely people, even children, will die unexpected. The The Bible is honest. God is honest. And I think, therefore, it's reliable. We live, says the Bible, in a fallen world ruled by death and the devil. The Bible promises resurrection and redemption and eternal life, but it does not promise an easy life characterized by no suffering. In fact, just the opposite. We talked yesterday about uh, the Epicurean dilemma or Epicurus's question, um, why does a good God essentially allow evil? And and that's normally what philosophers call the problem of evil. If God is good, why is there evil? But here's the thing. I see no philosophical problem of evil whatsoever because what we see in the world, all the tragedy and all the heartache and all the pain is what we should expect given what the Bible tells us. Now, let's say 200 years from now, the um, the Star Force turns into the United Federation of Planets, and we've solved all of the world's sicknesses and inequalities and pains and problems, and we're living in a utopia where you don't have to work for money, and everybody's comfortable and happy. Then we will have a problem philosophically with the Bible. We'll call it then the problem of comfort, because such a utopian life among humans will actually contradict what the Bible tells us to expect in the world. The existing and impact of evil and suffering do not contradict the Bible's reliability, but actually reinforce it. If you've wondered about suffering, join the club. Every time I go through a hard stretch, I'm sick, my kids are sick, we're going through difficult financial times, whatever trouble it might be, injuries, somebody you love is, is in a devastated place, or you're in a devastated place. Every time I go through that, I shake my head and wonder why. And every time I'm surprised, even though I know the Bible says don't be surprised when you go through trials and suffering, 
Honestly, if I'm being straight with you, I'm always surprised. I never say, oh, here it is again. Yeah, oh, that's great. Happy day. It's, it's suffering exactly what the Bible tells me to expect. I'm so glad it's here. But I should not be surprised. And, and here, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that suffering is not a problem. It is a problem. It's absolutely a problem. Go back and read what Job said yesterday about his suffering if you've forgotten how visceral and real it is. What I am saying is that nobody should use suffering and evil in the world in a way that somehow invalidates the Bible as a reliable book. Because the thing is, the amount of evil and suffering in the world is exactly what we would expect given the teaching of the Bible. And so for the last two episodes, we've laid some biblical groundwork to develop a pretty good overview of suffering according to the Bible. Not terribly deep. You can't do that in three short episodes. But, but you know, maybe, maybe more than a couple of inches deep, hopefully. And with kind of a foundation like that, uh, sort of a the basic, most basic of basics, uh, biblical theology of suffering under our belts. Let's kind of go into the specific question. Why do bad things happen sometimes to seemingly good people? And here's a few answers from the Bible, and there are many more than this, but let's just start with a few. Number one, bad things sometimes happen to good people for God's ultimate glory. I think about the man who was born blind in John chapter 9 that was healed by God, uh, healed by Jesus. And, And we read about him in verse 1 of John 9. As he was passing by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So why did that guy suffer? Was it because of the sins of him or his parents? No, it was for the glory of God. Number two, sometimes bad things happen to comparatively good people for the purpose of discipline. Now, I'm not saying this is always the case. I'm saying sometimes. Hebrews 12.7 says, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Well, that kind of discipline is not meant to destroy. It's loving. It doesn't feel loving. It feels really painful. But it's meant to shape you and build character. And it can be a sign that you are God's child. Trials demonstrate sonship. That you are a daughter of the king or son of the king. Number three, sometimes bad things happen to good people to build hope and perseverance and strengthen them. Romans 5.3, Paul says, that was we read yesterday, we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Number four, sometimes bad things happen to good people for the spread of the gospel and the maturity of the church. Paul says this in Galatians 4.19, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Now, I don't exactly know what Paul means about suffering labor pains, but what he's saying is that I'm going through painful things for you as the gospel matures you and builds you up. That was difficult for Paul, but it was good for the Galatians. Sometimes we suffer for the good of other people. And finally, number five, often 
bad things happen to good people for inexplicable and unexplained in this lifetime reasons. Now, I know that's very, not very satisfying, but that is the truth. Take, for instance, Job. He never learns why he goes through what he goes through. Jeremiah doesn't either. Think about this episode in the life of Paul in Acts 14. Paul has been following God and following Jesus with all his heart, mightily used by God to perform miracles and take the gospel to cities all across Asia Minor. And here comes this situation in Acts 14, verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had evangelized that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Now, we just read that passage earlier. It's good to read it again. Understand, the guy who was just stoned to death and raised from the dead says, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Now, why did that happen? Why was he stoned to death? He was doing the right thing. He was living a good life. Why did it happen? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't know. Sometimes we suffer for inexplicable reasons. We won't always know why, but the Bible gives a resounding answer for suffering, and that answer is the resurrection. Our resurrection, specifically made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. Revelation 21, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it's so hopeful. Verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We are coming to a time when God himself will wipe every tear from every eye, and then there will be no more death or grief or crying or pain. That is how the resurrection, the coming resurrection that was purchased by the resurrection of Jesus answers the question of suffering. So in closing, you can't read the Bible and not expect suffering. All humans suffer. Jesus, the most righteous, suffered most of all. That's bad news. Let's be honest about it. The good news, though, is that in Christ, our sufferings will literally pair in comparison to the glories to come. That is the blessed hope of the gospel. 
Yes, indeed. Jesus came for us to have abundant life, but that life will include suffering, says the Word of God. Suffering is necessary, says Paul, literally a few days or weeks after he was nearly stoned to death. It's unavoidable. The real question is, are you in Christ? Because if you are, then you have the hope that one day your sufferings will be tiny compared to the glory that will come to you as one who has been saved and redeemed by Jesus. So look to him and be saved, trusting in him for your salvation and following him with your life. One final word before we read the last two passages. Since this is our last episode for now, on the problem of evil and the question of why good people suffer, I need to say this. These past few episodes have met the problem of evil on a philosophical level, seeking to address skeptics and those who might doubt God or the truth of the Bible because of their suffering or the suffering in the world. The philosophical level is not where you should meet people when they are suffering. They don't first need an explanation or an apologetic. They first need care, compassion, and your own tears weeping with them. This is what Job's friends got right, really the only thing they got right, at least for a little while, during the first week where they just sat quietly with Job. You don't have to explain suffering or spout off philosophical reasons to believe while somebody is going through catastrophe. Just be there. Hold their hand. Pray for them. Weep with them. Be near. Serve them. Let your words be you and your presence be obvious. Mark chapter 8 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In those days there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, so they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About four thousand were there. He dismissed them, and he got immediately into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation." Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and do not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, 
don't you understand yet? And they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes, and the man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? They answered him, oh, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked him, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and Godspeed. See you tomorrow.